Hey, Ultrasounds listeners, would you like a chance to win a $50 Amazon gift card? Fill out a feedback survey. More info at the end of this episode. Hello and welcome to Ultrasounds, a podcast by OBGYN Delivered. I'm Rachel. And I'm Teresa. Today, we are lucky to have Dr. Luke Burns returning to Ultrasound, this time to talk about postpartum hemorrhage. Dr. Burns is a clinical assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology and full-time laborist at University of Michigan. He received his medical degree from UC San Diego before completing residency in OBGYN at the University of Michigan. His research focuses on timing of elective induction of labor and medical education. Next year, Dr. Burns will be heading to the University of Chicago to begin his MFM fellowship. Thanks for being here. Before we get into the clinical vignettes, Dr. Burns, if you didn't do medicine as your career, what would you have done instead? This is such a classic interview question, and I, I think I just answered this recently on my interviews, but I would have been an archaeologist. I fancy myself as a bit of an Indiana Jones. I like history and, and I like... Uh, going on adventures. So that's what what I would have done. Very cool. But like mentioned today, we were talking about postpartum hemorrhage, which is a very high yield topic for learners and also a very serious clinical topic since it is a leading cause of maternal morbidity and mortality in the U.S. and around the world. Postpartum hemorrhage causes approximately 11% of maternal deaths in the U.S. and is the leading cause of maternal death on the day of delivery. And what's worse is that 54 to 93% of deaths from postpartum hemorrhage are preventable. So jumping in, we can start with case one, 35-year-old G4P4 with a pregnancy complicated by polyhydramnios gives birth after a prolonged labor. Following delivery of the placenta, she continues to have vaginal bleeding that has surpassed 1,100 cc's. On bimanual exam, she has a boggy uterus. Her vital signs are stable. What is the most likely cause of her postpartum hemorrhage? Okay, so if I was encountering this kind of vignette on a test, whether a shelf exam or a step exam, Um, some of the buzzwords that I would pull out from the vignette are her pregnancy and labor complications. So she has polyhydramnios and prolonged labor. So I'm going to highlight that. And she's already had her vaginal delivery. Baby is out. So, and she has completed, she has delivered the placenta. So she's like completed, you know, labor and delivery. She's gone through the third stage, but she's continuing to bleed. We're a little worried about this. And she's actually had 1,100 cc's of blood loss. And so the previous definitions, which I think sometimes you might still see in old question banks and stuff, is uh, postpartum hemorrhage for a vaginal delivery is defined by greater than 500 cc's of blood loss. And for a C-section, it's greater than one liter. But ACOG has actually changed the definition to be greater than one liter regardless of delivery route, so vaginal or C-section, or signs of hypovolemia within 24 hours of delivery. So think, you know, tachycardia, low blood pressure, orthostasis, those kinds of things. However, I just point out the difference there because you may still see some of the old definitions on exams or other bodies kind of that regulate OBGYN or provide recommendations throughout the world still use some of these definitions. Okay, enough about the blood loss. The other buzzword I'm going to pull out from this case is a boggy uterus. And so this is suggesting to me uterine atony. So let's pull this all together. She has had a lot of bleeding after a vaginal delivery. We're going to call this a postpartum hemorrhage. And we're concerned that it might be caused by uterine atony. And so what is atony? 
It's really the inability of the uterus to effectively contract or clamp down after delivery, which is what we need for all the blood vessels to compress. And so all those blood vessels that previously supplied the placenta, we need those to compress down and cause mechanical hemostasis. Risk factors for acne actually includes polyhydramnios and prolonged labor, which this patient had, as well as things like chorioamnionitis or multiple gestation. And so the first line treatment for uterine acne and postpartum hemorrhage is actually uterine massage. We want to provide some of that mechanical compression for hemostasis that the uterus isn't doing on its own. So massage can actually help stimulate the uterus to start contracting down on its own. Dr. Burns, what do you have to add? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good definition, Trace. I would say, and I also agree with Rachel when she was saying just how important postpartum hemorrhage is when we think about obstetrical uh, morbidity and mortality, particularly in, in countries out that are not the US. You know, typically if a patient comes to one of our big academic hospitals, is having a lot of bleeding, all you need to do is call the blood bank and give them all the blood that you need. But in uh, um, rural areas of this of the country or in like I said, places outside of the US, when a, a hospital might only have, let's say, two units of blood available, that becomes a really, really scary scenario for a patient who has ongoing bleeding. I think acne definitely is the big one we need to think about the most. And if you are rotating on the wards and the resident or the attending is giving you a lecture on postpartum hemorrhage, you'll sound really clever if you say, oh, I remember somebody telling me once that 70 to 80% of all cases of postpartum hemorrhage are caused by acne. It's a good, good number to kind of throw out and sound smart. But it's also really important for us to think about the other things that can cause the postpartum hemorrhage. So uh, ACOG and some other people talk about the four T's of the postpartum hemorrhage. The first T being tone, which we said accounts for 80% of postpartum hemorrhage. The second, the second T is often trauma. So when someone talks about trauma in a delivery, they typically think about trauma to the perineum. So bleeding from a perineal laceration. But again, you can sound really smart on, on your awards. If you also talk about the most, a, a kind of a, a commonly overlooked source of trauma in a, in a vaginal delivery, and that's trauma to the cervix. And so that would mean that you might have a test question that said that the patient didn't have any perineal laceration, did not have a buggy uterus, but was still bleeding. Hmm. In that situation, it might be a good idea to place a speculum and have a really, really close look at the cervix to see if there was a tear on the cervix or a cervical laceration. The third T in the postpartum hemorrhage is tissue. So we typically think about tissue being placenta. So is there any retained placenta that needs to be removed from the uterus? Um, or is that placenta going to be stuck to the uterus? So placenta accreta spectrum, which we talked about previously, uh, is something that would be really scary, but certainly could be a cause for bleeding too. The last T uh, is, is thrombin. So that's just a short way of talking about coagulopathy. Now, the big scary coagulopathy that you'll hear about a lot in obstetrics and also in other fields, like for a patient who might be in the ICU with multi-organ failure, uh, is DIC, disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, which is basically a consumptive process where the bleeding is so bad that the patient does, just not, does not have any more clotting factors to, to staunch that bleeding. But I want you guys to also think about coagulopathy as just maybe in some cases just being a deficiency in one or two different uh, clotting factors or other blood products. Maybe a patient might have a thrombocytopenia, and that would technically be a coagulopathy too. And that's important when it comes time to correct that coagul coagulopathy by giving more blood products to the patient. But certainly that big T tone acne is one that you guys should always be thinking about. Great. And a follow-up question to that, you know, how do we actually measure patient blood loss in, you know, a vaginal delivery or a cesarean delivery? 
because I know some of the postpartum hemorrhage definitions really rely on how much blood did they actually lose. Yeah, it's comically difficult because, you know, you hear these terms people throw around like EBL or QBL, which stands for estimated blood loss or quantified blood loss, quantifiable blood loss. And uh, there's all these interesting studies that you'll ask nurses or doctors or midwives to try to assess, you know, they'll, they'll pour some red liquid on the floor and say, how much blood loss is that? And everybody will have a very, very different answer. When you throw in the situation that this is a scary, a scary scenario where people are kind of panicking because there's a lot of bleeding that's ongoing. There's also a whole bunch of amniotic fluid, maybe meconium kind of contaminating your, your assessment. It's really, really hard to really know exactly how much blood somebody has actually lost in that situation. There are some, some new initiatives in certain institutions. People try to quantify that blood loss, like I said, determining a QBL instead. But there's also a lot of there's also some problems people have with that too. So the answer to your question, Teresa, it's not easy. People are still trying to figure out the best way. Um, but fortunately, there's not going to be a, a test question where they have to where they show you a picture of blood and, and ask you how much is in the picture. You don't have to worry about that for now. That would be completely unfair. And you know, it'd be a really bad picture, right? You know, you've seen those USMLE question, the uh, pictures they have in those questions are never very clear at all. Oh, yes. Very pixelated. Well, thank you for that great overview of kind of the causes of postpartum hemorrhage. I think those four T's will be helpful and high yield for the wards and exams. Um, so we can go ahead and go into our second vignette. So we have a 35-year-old G4P4 with chronic uncontrolled hypertension who gave birth after a prolonged labor. Her vaginal delivery is complicated by postpartum hemorrhage secondary to uterine acne. What medication do you want to start and which medications do you want to avoid for this patient? Okay, so coincidentally here, there are a lot of similarities between this patient and our previous patient. So she's also a 35-year-old G4P4, had prolonged labor, and now she has postpartum hemorrhage due to acne. So we discussed in the last question that the first thing we probably want to do is start uterine massage. That can help with some of that mechanical compression. However, we're not getting sufficient tone. So what I want to do would be move on to urotonics. And those do exactly what they sound like is try to provide more tone to the uterus, but they're actually medications. And so this may sound counterintuitive, but some of the first line uterotonics are those that we actually use to induce or augment labor. So sometimes we will start with Pitocin or Oxytocin. And then we can also give mesoprostol, which can be given like buccally, so in the cheek or rectally. If we presume this is our same patient as our last case, and she has had 1,100 cc's blood loss from a vaginal delivery, I would be inclined to give both PIT and meso. There are some other common uterotonics that you know can be thrown around or you can be kind of asked about on the wards, and those primarily are methogen and hemobate. Hemobate also goes by carboprost. Now, the things to know here is that this woman has chronic hypertension. So methogen is a no. Methogen is contraindicated. It's a great uterotonic because it acts directly on the smooth muscle of the uterine to increase tone. And so it would really help in an acne situation. However, it also acts on other smooth muscle. And so this can cause vasoconstriction. And so it's contraindicated in people who have hypertension. Hemabate, just a quick plug for that one, is a synthetic prostaglandin that binds to the prostaglandin receptors on that uterine smooth muscle cells and also causes contraction. However, the contraindication to remember with hemabate is asthma because binding to prostaglandins can also stimulate that bronchial smooth muscle contraction, which can give you bronchospasm. Dr. Burns, what would you give this patient? 
Well, I think you basically saved the patient's life. You gave all the good stuff. So good job. I think, you know, it's really important for us to think like you did about things that are non-medical first, non-pharmacological, because you can do that right then and there, assuming the patient has adequate analgesia, or you at least give them a lot of warning that you're going to be doing a lot of kind of mashing on their belly, doing that firm bundled massage. One thing that we might also consider is doing a, a bimanual removal of products. So again, this is a very intense exam. You need consent to perform it, and hopefully you'll have adequate analgesia. But if you don't, it's going to be a life-saving procedure. And that's when you place one hand on the patient's abdomen, and then one hand gently, as gently as you can, inside the patient's vagina, through the cervix, and into the top of the uterus. So you can actually kind of, in one sense, do a bimanual exam very, very intensely that you can feel your hand on top, but it more importantly allows you to basically remove any re remaining blood clots uh, that could be at the top of the fundus and help that uterus to clamp down. If you can imagine if there's stuff still inside the uterus, it's not going to be able to squeeze shut. But going past that, saying those initial kind of things you do don't work. One thing that we do in most places is what's called active management of the third stage of labor. And that means that we actually give Pitocin straight away as soon as that placenta is delivered regardless we give it even before the placenta is delivered we give it as soon as the baby is delivered regardless of whether or not the uh there's going to be there's a postpartum hemorrhage or a risk for one and that's because we've we know that that is one effective mechanism to reduce blood loss so pitocin is always used first no matter what but what you can do and what you may see in a test answer is actually increase the rate of infusion of the pitocin that you're giving pitocin is overall a relatively safe medication and certainly in life saving scenarios, it's okay to increase that infusion rate. Um, the next agent is kind of a controversial one. And you mentioned misoprostol, which I don't think is a wrong answer by any means. I would say that most places are moving away from giving misoprostol secondarily. It's quite a slow acting agent. Um, typically takes about 30 minutes to reach kind of its, its peak uh, pharmacokinetic you know, dosages inside the human body. There was a big systematic review in 2015 that tried to find out what the best, among other things, what the best agent is to give and which order to give them in, but there wasn't really, a, there wasn't strong enough data to suggest any kind of agent. So any of those four agents would be good to give next. Uh, at my institution, we often give methogen next. Obviously, that's not something this patient can get. Hemovate or carboprost is a really good medication, as you mentioned. People tend to be a little bit hesitant about giving it. Unfortunately, physicians and midwives will hesitate because it can cause pretty gnarly diarrhea, which obviously in the case of a life-saving scenario is, is irrelevant. You can give loperamide or imodium at the same time if you have to. Um, but that will, you will have people say that, oh, why don't we hold off on the hemobate? She's not bleeding that badly. You should just go ahead and give it. It's also medication that you can dose more frequently than you can methogen. Methogen takes, you have to wait at least two hours before the second dose, whereas hemobate, you can give consecutive doses every 15 minutes. Um, one thing about hemobate as well, I always say this to medical students, you mentioned two names for it, hemobate, which is the trade name, and then carboprost, which I think is like the chemical name, but there is a third name that they use on some test questions, and that is 15-methyl-PGF2-alpha, which is a mouthful, but it's worth memorizing because it has the word methyl in it, which often gets people confused with methogen, which is also called methyl organovine. So just make sure you know that hemabate is also called carboprost and is also called 15-methyl-PGF2-alpha. It actually gets metabolized into a prostaglandin. That's the PGF2-alpha part, but it's not methogen. That would be a very advanced question. So anybody who listening, you could be a pro and get that question right. 
if you can drop that in the operating room as you're just being questioned by that attending a resident, you're like, yeah, we could give 50 methyl PGF2 alpha. I think that's automatic honors. I think that's how it works. Keep this in mind, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting all the tips today for my OB-GYN rotation. So Dr. Burns, what other side effects do we need to be looking for with these medications? You mentioned diarrhea, but what else is there? Yeah, the only really other really important one that I wanted to mention was mesoprostol. Um, that or prostaglandin E1, that one uh, can be associated with fevers. Uh, so that's really important for those patients that, you know, you might get a test question that shows a patient with a low grade fever after they deliver, and that'll be the only symptom. They'll tell you somewhere in the prompt that she got mesoprostol, um, and then they'll see if you want to treat her for endometritis. It's important to know that that might be a short-lived low grade fever associated with the mesoprostol, or, or, you know, similarly, she might've just had the mesoprostol as part of her induction course, and so it would not necessarily warrant antibiotics in that case, if that were the only symptom. Another sneaky question. Okay, so we can move into case three. So again, we have a 35-year-old G4P4 who suffers a postpartum hemorrhage due to uterine acne. She is two hours post-evaginal delivery and has lost 1,600 cc's of blood. Interventions so far include uterine massage, pitocin, mesoprostol, and hemabate. Her vital signs are a heart rate of 134 beats per minute, a respiratory rate of 14, and her blood pressure is 82 over 54. What is the next best step for this patient? Oh my goodness, our poor patient. Nothing seems to be working and she's continuing to bleed. So um, now what I'm concerned about, looking at her vital signs, she is becoming hemodynamically unstable. With that heart rate, she's tachycardic and those blood pressures are quite soft. So despite all of the interventions we've done thus far, we need to escalate care. And so one option at this stage is for intrauterine balloon tamponade. This is essentially inflating a balloon inside the uterus so that you can provide more of that mechanical compression for hemostasis that we've talked about before. The tricky part actually is deciding when we are satisfied with this intrauterine balloon tamponade and slowing down the bleeding and when we would need to do something more invasive like a uterine artery embolization in the interventional radiology suite or even a hysterectomy. And some studies have shown, you know, a good time to evaluate this is around 10 minutes after you place the balloon and inflate it. And if you've continued to have more than 250 cc's of blood loss at 10 minutes, you need to move on to more invasive techniques. So when the moral of the story here, though, is that when patients are starting to become hemodynamically unstable, it's important to be prepared to act quickly. And so in her case, we'd want to get the balloon in quickly and then also be monitoring closely for if we need to move on to do something more invasive. Dr. Burns, what would you do in this situation? Again, I think you saved the patient's life. You did all the stuff that I would do too. I would say the uh, intrauterine balloon device is a, is a wonderful option. The, the, the trade name that you often hear is Bakri balloon, B-A-K-R-I, uh, which I'm tempted to always use, but that's not what you see on an exam. And there are certainly other products that are options too. One other method that we didn't mention that's often paired with the balloon, which precedes the balloon, uh, is vacuum aspiration, which can be electric or manual. Um, and we use that to remove any contents of the uterus, whether that's blood clots or maybe even re retain products of conception like placenta that not only help the uterus to clamp down, but also provide space for that, that balloon to deploy. You can imagine if there's a whole bunch of blood in there and you're trying to put a balloon in, it's just not going to work. 
Um, sometimes the acne that we encounter is not actually at the fundus. The patient might not have acne, but we might notice that they have very a very buggy lower uterine segment. Now, you guys remember that a lot of the muscle fibers in the uterus are at the fundus, but there are still some muscular components down below. So sometimes we actually are very strategic about where we place that balloon. Either we'll, we'll do it under ultrasound, definitely. And we might place that up at the fundus. We'll place it in the lower uterine segment. That's a really effective strategy to use in those situations. Now, what if we did have to move on to something a little more invasive, like the uterine arm? artery embolization or a hysterectomy? When would you be worried and when would you start thinking about those? I often draw a line, particularly if we're talking about patients who are delivering, having a vaginal delivery. I draw a line when I do this teaching on the board, like a dashed line to say before and after we go to the operating room, because there's all these things that we can do, the manual massage, the medications, even the balloon, we can do those things in the room. But there comes a point when we cross the line and say, okay, this has to go to the operating room. This is not being controlled well enough. When we get to the operating room, you know, that's to perform a laparotomy, and maybe we're already there because this is a C-section, but that means that we're going to do more invasive things. So some things that you might hear about or be asked about or read about would be things like uh, a B-Lynch suture. So that's when we basically have a really, really buggy uterus that's so buggy, it's basically like a deflated balloon that you can roll up. I always think of it for some reason, like a Swiss roll. That's what it looks like. It rolls up in and of itself. And then we put these stitches in and in such a way that we actually kind of apply suspenders to the uterus and compress it down. Uh, I said the name of it is B-Lynch. It's named after a, a, a man who whose name is actually B-Lynch, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, but he basically has saved so many lives with this technique. The other uh, name you might hear, the eponymous name, is a, a, an O'Leary stitch, O-Leary. And that basically is a compressive suture or a ligating suture across the uterine arteries, which you might remember from your anatomy textbooks as running lateral to the to the uterus. Um, you mentioned as well, Teresa, about a uterine artery embolization. And that's a really special uh, tool that we have at some hospitals, at some big academic centers. It's a, it's a procedure that's performed by the interventional radiology, uh, the inter interventional radiology folks. And you have to be really careful about which patients will qualify for that procedure, because that means, like you said, you have to go to the interventional radiology suite, which means calling up those doctors, getting them involved, having them assess the patient, uh, and then transporting the patient somewhere else. Now, if this patient is bleeding, like you mentioned before, 600 cc's a, a minute, you know, consume, the uterus is taking up 20% of the cardiac output, all this blood coming out. If this patient is really unstable, like the one in this scenario, they're not going to be the one who's going to be able to safely get to that uh, interventional radiology suite on the other side of the hospital. That's much better for the patient who's having kind of slow, persistent bleeding, who hasn't responded to some of the agents that we've used already, maybe has a Bakri balloon in place with a little bit of bleeding around the balloon, but is totally stable. That patient is a really, really good candidate to go to the IR suite. Anybody who's unstable, sorry, no, that's not going to be an option. And that's when we're thinking about the, uh, the cesarean hysterectomy. The cesarean hysterectomy is just like any hysterectomy that you saw in your gynecology rotation, uh, except that this is in a big uterus. It's got really good blood supply that was until very recently supporting a pregnancy. So it's a much higher risk uh, procedure for bleeding. But it's the kind of thing that anybody who goes into an OBGYN residency should be prepared to perform. When we talked in a different episode about placenta accreta spectrum, that's often also treated by cesarean hysterectomy. But in those cases, the placenta is so invasive that it can be bleeding, it can be kind of invading into other parts and other organs into, and can make the bleeding a lot worse and the procedure a lot more dangerous. In this situation, it's overall, once you've got the bleeding under control, a safe procedure. It just is a big deal, obviously, because this patient 
can no longer have, uh, can no longer uh, uh, give birth, which is a big decision to make. But if the alternative is the patient dies, you can imagine it's, it's sometimes the only option. definitely lead to some tough conversations and tough decisions. Yeah, absolutely. So we have our last, I believe our last case here. So we have a 35-year-old G4P4 presenting to your gynecology clinic. She is six months postpartum from a vaginal delivery, which was complicated by a postpartum hemorrhage of 1,800 cc's, which required interuterine, intrauterine balloon tamponade. She has been bottle feeding due to low milk production. Her presenting concern is that she has not started menstruating since her pregnancy. What is the most likely diagnosis in this patient? Alrighty. So first things first, I'm glad to see that our patient got away with just the intrauterine balloon tamponade and did not need to have one of those more invasive techniques, particularly a hysterectomy to stop her hemorrhage. Now, returning to this particular vignette, a couple of things to highlight um, in her postpartum course. So she's had low milk production and no return of periods. So let's just do a quick little endocrinology review here and talk about what contributes to lactation in the postpartum period. So increased prolactin from the anterior pituitary gland, which is in response to thyrotropin releasing hormone released by the thalamus, is what contributes to lactation. So if she does not have lactation right now, we might expect her to have low prolactin. Now, turning more to the return of menses, again, the HPO axis is involved here. So the HPO axis is responsible for the classic rise and fall of estrogen and progesterone in response to FSH and LH. And this is also from the anterior pituitary gland. So where these two pathways are intersecting is at that anterior pituitary gland, suggesting hypopituitarism after her postpartum hemorrhage. And this is classic for Sheehan syndrome. The technical definition of Sheehan syndrome is damage or necrosis to the pituitary gland resulting from loss of blood flow as a result of postpartum hemorrhage, hypovolemia, or shock. So you can think about the other things that might uh, manifest in Sheehan syndrome and what could be kind of the presenting signs and symptoms. So what else comes from the pituitary gland? Growth hormone. So if you have a growth hormone deficiency, things you might see would be fatigue, mood changes like depression and anxiety or loss of sexual function. And growth hormone deficiency is actually the most likely to occur because the cells that secrete growth hormone actually sit on the lateral edges of the pituitary. And so they're most subjected to ischemic changes. You can also think about the thyroid. So a TSH deficiency that can cause dry skin, uh, feeling cold all the time, hair loss, or also fatigue. An ACTH deficiency can cause low cortisol or hypopigmentation. And this is actually a scary one because people can present an adrenal crisis. And then also lower ADH. So this could um, present as SIADH. And so in my review of the literature preparing for this episode, I cannot say this is you know, a super common diagnosis in the U.S., and it might be kind of extreme to find in this specific patient who got away with intrauterine balloon tamponade. It doesn't sound like she was in severe hypovolemic shock, but it's definitely a popular standardized exam question and worth discussing here. Dr. Burns, what do you have to add? 
Yeah, I think that was a really good uh, explanation. You know, as I've moved more from into the obstetrics world and away from endocrine, I'm just so impressed with how easily you can, first of all, pronounce hyperpituitarism, which is not an easy word to say, but also just that that complicated HBO access, I think has always been challenging for everybody. So if you're uh, listening to this right now and you're a little bit nervous and or, or worried about uh, hearing all the stuff that Teresa says, don't worry, we all kind of hate this stuff too, <laughs> except for the people that go into REI. One thing I just want to add too, as far as your explanation for Sheehan syndrome, it certainly is rare. I've probably seen it once all through residency. Um, but I think it's a really important discussion, even if it is rare, not just because it does appear frequently on exams, but also because that postpartum period, what people are more and more frequently referring to as the fourth trimester, is often an overlooked time in a patient's recovery after, after uh, pregnancy. Uh, a patient might present with the symptoms that you describe, and we might just chalk it up to being a fatigued new mother. But there's a lot of things on your differential, as well as Sheehan syndrome, that you should, you should be thinking of as well. And some of these underdiagnosed conditions that could present pretty similarly. So a, a really common one, and one that we see not infrequently, that's very, very underdiagnosed and also happens to come up on uh, test questions a lot, is postpartum thyroiditis which can present as either hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, or one or both consecutively, uh, depending on when it's diagnosed. Also, don't forget the postpartum blues and postpartum depression can manifest as well as senses of fatigue um, or mood changes. Um, I think that what really makes Sheehan syndrome uh, uh, more of a slam dunk when you get it is having not just one of these symptoms, kind of of these non-specific generalized fatigue or anything, but typically multiple ones. And don't forget to look at that vital sign, the blood pressure as well, because they'll sneak that in there, just like you said, having uh, maybe not even an adrenal crisis, but they might be a little bit hypotensive, for example, accompanied with, let's say, decreased lactation and menstrual changes. That should really clue you in to a possible diagnosis of Sheehan syndrome. What are some other maybe complications we should be looking for in our patients with histories similar to this patient who, you know, had a postpartum hemorrhage? I think a big one is thinking about anemia. So recovering from a pregnancy where a patient had a pretty high blood loss, they may or may not have had uh, anemia. Well, they certainly will have had anemia before having their delivery, right? Because we know that, that a physiological anemia pregnancy is very, very common. Um, but they may have, might also have had some, some risk factors before, and I'm often thinking about things like sickle cell or other hemoglobinopathies as well that make recovery from pregnancy that much more challenging. In those situations, it's really, really important to encourage patients to restore their iron stores after deliveries. That might mean going home on a, an iron pill. And a handy tip that you may or may not already know is that we, you know, people typically pre prescribe iron pills and they can often cause constipation. But taking that pill every single day is no different than taking it every single other day as far as how much iron the patient, the body is able to, to absorb. The body is really bad at absorbing iron. Um, and so I would recommend those patients take it, take their iron pill every other day. Um, and then some cases as well, it's quite important for us at that postpartum visit. So typically, which is about four to six weeks after delivery to get a repeat CBC to see if they've recovered from that anemia um, or if they need either a further workup or just continued iron uh, supplementation. I guess one other thing too, just so I can throw in a plug, postpartum hemorrhages are really scary things to go through, right? Not just for us as providers, talk about secondary trauma, but for the patient themselves. A bunch of people, a bunch of alarms going off, a bunch of people running into the room, and maybe even doing a bunch of scary procedures that are painful or can be invasive or uncomfortable is a really, really common cause of birth trauma, which is something that we're trying to reduce a lot around the world, but definitely in the United States. 
So I would say having an opportunity to debrief with the patient, ideally immediately after it happened or the next day is great, but certainly giving the patient space to discuss that experience at their postpartum visit, I think would be uh, something to keep your eye on. It's probably not going to come up on an exam anytime soon, but that's just my personal plug uh, for anybody listening out there who ends up becoming an OBGYN. Yeah, absolutely. It's important to remember we're trying to teach you the things that will help you on exams, but also just how to be a good OBGYN and doctor in general. Definitely. And I think, yeah, a lot of things in that postpartum period can get overlooked, which is really unfortunate. So thank you for kind of giving us that plug, Dr. Burns, and just sharing your time and expertise with us today. And that concludes our episode on postpartum hemorrhage. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in. Remember, you can subscribe to Ultrasounds wherever you get your podcast. For more high-yield topic reviews and recent news, you can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at OBGYN underscore delivered, or find more topic review outlines and free question banks at our website, www.obgyndelivered.com. And always remember, we put in the labor so you can deliver. Hey, listeners, thanks for listening to this episode of Ultrasounds. Would you like the chance to win a $50 Amazon gift card? Fill out our feedback survey linked in the description of this podcast. Make sure to complete all questions in order to be eligible for the raffle. Participation in this survey is voluntary and responses will be used to better ultrasounds for audience members like you. The survey takes less than five minutes to complete and will invite you to enter into a raffle for a $50 gift card upon your submission. OBJN Delivered appreciates your feedback.